Banks are raking in the profit, but Congress may be ready to tax them. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. It is Thursday, David. Here's your Thursday fun story. TMZ is telling me that Robin Thicke's marriage is falling apart because of his antics on stage with Miley Cyrus at the VMAs. Who could have known that, that, that sexually suggest, suggestive dancing in front of a national studio audience would be bad for your marriage? That's what it was? How, how could anybody have known? Wasn't the music video and nudity and running all over the place? Well, maybe I'm torn were, up about this. I, I'm, I'm, you, I'm you, upset. You sound like it. You appear to be. Uh, ro- I thought it was meant to be. I thought, the, I, thought I was going to go to their 50th anniversary wedding party, but I guess it won't be happening. It's all very, all very sad on a down note to start the day. On a better note, let's go to the first headline. The first headline is from Fortune, and the headline is Bank Profits Hit an All-Time High. Admittedly, David, I didn't actually read the Fortune article. I just went directly to the FDIC. The FDIC reported banks' profits. They are up. They are healthy. Mm-hmm. They are above where we were in 2006. Now, when we think about the fact that, that on this show, we talk a lot about how cheap banks are uh, and, and how the banking industry still has room to recover, room to improve, are we, are we fooling ourselves a little bit? I, I mean, we're already back above where we were in 2006, and that was a danger zone. So how, why shouldn't we be worried today? A lot of the profit... It's a art- trick question, by the way. When, when, when you come back to me, I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> okay, it's a trick question. But the article pointed to a lot of the profit is driven by lower reserving against bad loans, which is fine. But the, we're not tricking ourselves if that continues to happen at a healthy level and revenue grows on the top line. Mm-hmm. It's a tricky thing to do those things and do it right and not make bad loans and not chase after revenue, which ultimately hurts you in the long run. So if you still find a good bank today that can grow revenue and reduce those credit costs, then profits can go higher. So no. What do you, what do you think? It's, it's a nice story. The, the provisioning thing is a nice story, and, and I, th- I think people like to, to jump on that. Well, banks are making more profit today, but it's because they're reserving a lot less, and, and that's, that's a bad thing. But when you, when you look at the reserve, the provisions today versus the provisions in 2006, they're, they're very similar. They're basically the same. Um, and... So when you, when you look forward, uh, or, or when you look at where we are today, provisioning is way down from 2009, from 2010, from 2011. Yeah. But from 2006, not as much. So on a, on a like-to-like basis there, when we're saying, oh, we're at a profit level of 2006, the, uh, the non-interest income portion of banks' income is down from 2006. That makes sense because there was a lot of mortgage activity going on. We've seen mortgage activity fall off in the recovery period. Uh, but also a lot of the trading activity and a lot of the resale activity, that's down. Yep. But where we've, where we've seen a big jump uh, between then and now is, uh, is in net interest income. And so th- the quick jump on that would be to say, well, banks aren't paying anything for their money because interest rates are so low. And that is true, but they're earning very little. Yep. So the interest rate spread, very similar, again, 2006 to, to now. So where's the difference? The difference is, bec- is because we have larger balance sheets. Mm-hmm. And that isn't necessarily a sign that banks are getting a lot riskier or anything like that. This is just how banking works. The economy grows. More financing needs to happen. Who's going to do that? It's the banks. So profit's going to grow 
over time. This is an industry that's going to keep growing as the economy grows. That's just how it works. So when we look at the fact that profits are higher than they were, we, we shouldn't be sitting here saying, oh, that's really scary. No, that's just what happens. That's how this works. Profits are higher and they could continue to go higher then until they don't. I mean, there will be another credit cycle. Oh, sure. So yeah. In that process of increasing profits, you still want to find the banks that are good risk managers and not just growing like crazy to grow like crazy. So there will be another credit cycle. And it inter- will happen. Interestingly, that, exactly, that will happen. But it won't happen where probably everybody's going to be looking for yeah. it, which is where it was, because residential lending down from where we were in 2006, down considerably, the, the loans on the balance sheets. But CNI lending up, personal direct loans to individuals, particularly credit card loans, way up yep. from where we were in 2006. Uh, so a lot of changes in the structure of the balance sheet, even as overall assets have gone up. Second headline of the day. This one comes from CNN, I think. Um, looking at tax reform, Republican tax reform plan unveiled. Now, why are we talking about a Republican tax reform plan when this isn't a political show and it's probably because, not going to happen. we're turning it into article, a political the, show. We're the, turning this into a political show. No, we are not. We're just going <laughs> to talk politics. Not going we're going to bring in some C-SPAN footage and, and watch what's going on. I'm sorry, go ahead. So there's a plan out there. The article said that it probably won't even be thought of this year because the election's coming up. But the reason we're talking about it is because there was a proposed Nobody, tax. It's interesting. Nobody likes to take a stand when, when somebody's going to elect them or on the Yeah, line. Exactly. <laughs> But there's a proposed tax on big banks, I guess a quote-unquote, too big to fail tax, and it was 0.035% on assets over $500 billion. so assets on the balance sheet over $500 billion. So this is only going to hit the biggest of the big banks. I did some quick back-of-the-envelope math of the big four U.S. banks. Annually, that would be around $2 billion as their balance sheets sit today, excess over $500 billion. So $2 billion, not a huge deal, but what are the chances this even happens or is this a good idea i think bloomberg had actually had, had actually estimated something even even a little bit higher and when you com- combine them all you said what is that the top that was four, just the big said? four the big four okay so maybe that's a difference of numbers I, I think this is a dumb idea i think this is a dumb idea i i don't if this is just a blanket tax i think it sets a bad precedent of just targeting some industry randomly because you can because who's going to argue? Like right now, who's going to argue legitimately? Like go up and defend the big banks after the credit crisis, and so that they're targeting this gr- this uh, group of companies for really no reason, just just to get some extra tax revenue. So I think that sets a bad precedent. I also don't know that they've really thought through the unintended consequences of what this does. So when you when you tell banks we're going to tax you above a certain level of assets. So what's the incentive there? The incentive is to show lower assets right. that you can be taxed on. So what do banks do in it? Well, they, they sell them off into the, the non-bank, the shadow banking industry. Um, they structure things differently so the assets don't show up. And that's, that's not what you want. Yeah. You want transparency. You want this stuff out in the open. And giving them an incentive not to have it out in the open is not really... And lack of transparency is one of the catalysts for the crisis that we right, saw in exactly. 2008. So exactly. I'm with you. Third headline. Third headline. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal. The headline is U.S. new home sales surge in January, led by the Northeast. I love how they have a picture of Miami as the the cover. Is that Miami? Yeah, that makes no sense. You would know, the Miami graduate. Well, maybe they just wanted people to feel warm. Feel good, yeah. This makes no sense. All we've been talking about is this cold weather uh, affecting basically everything. Uh, 
street traffic, for, for, consumer, for consumer spending, certainly the housing market. How does this make any sense? This do, does it make any sense to you? It doesn't, and I'm going to take a stance right now. We had Malcolm, I hope Glad- so. we had Malcolm Gladwell here at, at HQ a couple weeks ago. For those of you who listen to Motley Fool Money, you heard him on there. Uh, he said when there's a subject that he's not an expert on, he defers. And he says, I'm just going to let you guys do that. I'm deferring on predicting these housing numbers, whether whether Im- whether, whether impacts housing numbers, what sales will be over the next month. That's not my level. That's not my area of expertise. Well, let, let, me, let me put it this I'm way. I'm deferring it. Let, who are you deferring to? To you or whoever knows to me, more I'm, than me I'm about the, expert. the housing market. Let, let, me, let me put it this way then. Do you think that this cold weather excuse is really valid? And, and we'll touch on this more a little bit later. I guess not. Do you? Yes. Well, here's, here's one thing. But it didn't matter. Here's, well, here's one thing to consider that new home sales are, are, are a small slice of the overall yeah. housing market. And the existing home sales are a much larger part. Um, and I don't know. Maybe this, is, maybe this is an aberration or a fluke. I'll tell you this much. If I was looking for a new home, I would have put it off during January. Yeah, it's pretty cold. All right, fourth and final headline of the day, sticking over at the Wall Street Journal. Court grants Fairholme's discovery motion in Fannie and Freddie suit. So that's Fairholme uh, referring to Bruce Berkowitz's fund. And he came out with the, the new proposal for housing finance in the U.S., but also has the lawsuit against him and every other hedge fund involved with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac against the U.S. government saying what the Treasury did in, was it 2000, August 2012? Sounds right. Uh, w- when they amended the amendment to amended the amendment right. to sweep all the profits to the treasury, they're saying Take that the is illegal. Uh, and the court are saying, let Fairholme do some discovery here. My question is, as a shareholder, if you, I know you're not, as a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac common shareholder, is this the number one thing that you're banking on now? This lawsuit, either going your favor or good news continuing to come out of this kind of whole process. I think it's not the only thing, but it is the, it's got to be the number 1. Cuz I I don't think there's I don't there's not a th- there's not a case that, that that Fannie Mae isn't worth significantly more than what it's shown on, on on the public markets right now. I think it is. But but the problem is is what's the path to getting that back into private shareholder hands and this is this is the primary route. Now if this doesn't work if the lawsuits don't work then there's also the potential that the government just goes ahead and does it anyway because they can't figure out anything else to do with it, right. any other way to kind of uh, um, keep the 30-year mortgage going without Fannie Mae. Um, but this, is, this has got to be the number one. So this is, this is something that those shareholders should be watching really, really closely. I agree because when you talk about just the government deciding to do something, mm-hmm. there's not really a timeline for that, and that could take five Ten years, whereas well, that and, and that impacts value right. realization on a, exactly. Like, whereas your this, annual returns, whereas the the lawsuit and the court proceedings have somewhat of a structured timeline in which things happen. So you have more of a direct path here. There you go. Uh, focus for today. We've got another stock pitch. We heard from you on Campus Crest Communities, a very interesting opportunity. I looked a little bit more into it. We heard about that on Tuesday. Yep, uh, I like that one. Now I'm going to go with one that we've talked about before. Maybe a little bit of a, of a softball, but this is the largest position in my personal portfolio. So I'm going to talk my book a little bit. Do it. And this is AIG. So let's start with a little bit of, of what AIG is. AIG is an insurer. They do property and casualty insurance on a, on a global basis. They do, um, uh, they do retirement, uh, retirement programs uh, and life insurance on a global basis. 
and they have mortgage insurance that we know a lot about from the, the housing market and, and how tough that was. So that's kind of the, the basics of the what uh, AIG is. Like any other insurance business, they, they, write, these, uh, they write these insurance uh, uh, premiums, mm-hmm. and then they take the money, they invest it, they collect, A, potentially any underwriting profits that they get over time for uh, pricing their insurance right, and B, any of the investment income from the, 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 uh, the funds that they're holding on to. Okay. So where has AIG been? This is a story that could, that could take a, a long, long time to tell. But basically, <clears throat> AIG was built by Hank Greenberg. It was, it was built as one of the most creative and innovative insurance companies, one of the most global insurance companies, going out there, finding the risks that needed to be insured, insuring them, uh, great ownership-type culture, I think really strong leadership by Hank Greenberg. Then Hank Greenberg kind of got in some hot water. It's, I'm, I'm not going to take a stance on, on whether it was right or wrong, but it was uh, in, in the area of Elliot Spitzer and all of his, uh, <clears throat> let's say, uh, over, interests, over, interests interest in oversight in uh, the financial companies in New York. So anyway, the, the, the bottom line on that, no more Hank Greenberg. New leadership came in, and what it appears is that as that new leadership came in, the, the strong oversight and culture that Hank Greenberg set up may have started to unravel, and that may have been the reason that the financial products unit at AIG got very out of control, started doing a lot of stupid things, uh, and when the financial crisis came around, AIG lost a tr- basically tremendous amount of money. Right. Uh, they were bailed out by the government. Government took a giant ownership stake. But since then, the well, there's there's two things that have happened. Number one, AIG spun off, sold uh, some of its what were called non-core assets. Some of them, I'm not sure, were as non-core as as <laughs> you, you'd like to think. Right. I, I think some of them were really part of the core AIG business. But anyway, they, they sold those, got a lot of money in, was able to pay back part of the government through that. But then also the 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 rest of the AIG business has shown through gotten back to, to very profitable status and has actually been able to pay back everything that the government put into it right. with interest, with, with some profit. Now, this hasn't gone unnoticed. This hasn't gone unnoticed. From the depths, we've seen the stock run significantly. Right. The stock is up huge, and you've got a lot of interest in there from some very prominent investors. Bruce Berkowitz uh, is one of the, I think, the second largest shareholder in AIG, if not the first. But you've got a, a lot of really sharp uh, investors who, who have gone in on AIG and made a lot of money on AIG already. So why do I like it today? So one reason I like it today is I think the, the management in there right now, Robert Benmoshe is the CEO of the company. Jay Wintraub runs the, the life and retirement arm of the company. And Peter Hancock runs the, the property and casualty insurance arm. I, I think these guys are all really sharp. Um, the one drawback of this, uh, of this leadership triumvirate, we might say, is that Ben Mache is kind of came in as a hired gun. He's been really good. I think he's been good for shareholders. I think he's been good for the company. But he's going he's gonna to leave relatively soon, within the next few yeah. years. Uh, Hancock, I think, is a sharp guy and, and is the one that I think people most expect will end up as CEO. But he's not an AIG lifer, so that could be good or bad given what happened to AIG. I would prefer to have an AIG lifer. He came over from J.P. Morgan. Okay. Uh, and then Winschraub, 
he's been with AIG for a long time. He was with Sun Life, which is actually what became AIG's uh, life and insurance, uh, life and retirement arm. Right. So, so I think you've got good leadership. I think there are concerns there with how that shifts and turns over the next few years. So shareholders are going to want to watch that. Uh, but I think the core business is just really, really strong. Um, this goes back to, to really the Hank Greenberg days, what he built and what he set up. I think that's able to take back over now. And then finally, got to get to valuation. The valuation is really what takes this from being interesting and potentially attractive to very attractive. It's trading at a, a 30% discount to tangible book value right now, um, so 0.7 times tangible book value. If you adjust 2013 uh, results, mm-hmm. you can say that on a, on a normalized basis, AIG had like a 6.5% return on, on book value, 6.5% return on book value, which isn't that attractive. But when you consider you're only paying 0.7 times for that book value, that jacks that up. So today, you're getting a return on your investment around 10%, right. which is very attractive. And that would be fine o- over time. If, if it just stayed like that, you get 10%, basically a 10% return on your investment every year. But the expectation is, is that uh, AIG is able to optimize on costs, get its uh, PNC insurance arm back, back up and running uh, to where it can be. And then also gets better investment results as the uh, interest rate environment turns around. Well, and the number so that get gets thrown around a lot is 10%. Can they get to a 10% return on equity? They had somewhat of a, not a target, but a range of kind of what they strive to get to. So that's, it. that's the expectation. Mm-hmm. They're lower than that now. How many years does it take for them to underperform that? Say, say they only grow book value at 6% a year for the next three years. Mm-hmm. Do you start to lose faith that this is a company that can grow book value at a significant rate? Depends on what's going on externally. So with an insurance company, you have the potential for catastrophe losses. You have the potential for uh, just a lot of stuff going on externally, which the results end up like this regardless because you'll have some years where you don't have a lot of losses you have to pay out and you'll have some where you'll have more. Also, the interest rate environment plays a big uh, role in, in the kind of returns. So if the environment is favorable and AIG is not firing on all cylinders, that's more concerning than if there's a lot of catastrophe losses that they have to pay out, and that's why they haven't gotten there. So if that's kind of the best-case scenario, mm-hmm. maybe not best, but give us one thing that you're legitimately worried about. What could cause this to be an underperformer or be a negative for an, for an investor? Two big things I'll point out there. Number one is that the business just kind of continues to muddle along, and, and it, it, lo- it starts to look like it's not differentiated uh, in terms of performance, in terms of expertise than anybody anybody else out there that they're competing right. with. So that's number one. Number two is reaching for yield. So in a low interest rate environment, uh, an investor like this, a company that makes a good deal of its money from investing the, the float that it holds, um, in a low interest rate environment, there's the temptation to go out and try to get more yield by doing stupid things. And if they're doing that right now, we won't see it now. We'll see it a few years uh, down the road. All right. Sounds good. I own it as well, so I was just giving you a hard time on some of those things. Well, I, I appreciate that. We, the, the, you made the, me feel good. The WTMIers need that. Well, thank you. All right, uh, let's move on to the mailbag. We still don't have our actual mailbag, maybe one day. Uh, WTMI at fool.com is our email address. Like I said yesterday, when we get that mailbag, we'll print stuff out and put it in the bag. We will. Because that'll be satisfying. Uh, our email for today comes from Kanye. A.K.A. Tim. He signed it as Kanye. That makes sense. Uh, (laughs) Kanye slash Tim writes, I am curious to hear your thoughts on companies that exclude quote-unquote one-time items. 
from their earnings report. Is there a rhyme or reason to what qualifies for these type of exclusions? In my opinion, whatever event that was excluded is something that actually happened to the business and should be taken into consideration. Do golfers report their score with an exclusion for a one-time double bogey on the 18th? Of course not. Am I wrong to feel this way? Please set me straight. David, uh, I'm not a golfer, but I'm, but I'm a runner, and, and I run a lot of trail races. And in these trail races, the trails tend to be marked really well for the race, but it's very easy to get off course on the race, and I've done that before. And what you don't get to do is you don't get to, 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 end, that time out. Get to the end of the race and say, yes, that was my time, but I was off course for five minutes, so can we just take that off my time? You don't get to do that. I don't like this. I don't like generally excluding for one-time items. I think for there is a case to be made that if you want to understand a company and there's something wonky going on in the financials, you can uh, sort of normalize the earnings. Like here's the normalized earnings power. But the trick is that those one-time items or that wonky stuff better really be one-time yeah. because a lot of times it's not one-time. It's the one time that they'll have one time every year. Right. Well, there's not really a rhyme or reason, which is... This first question. There's not a hard and fast rule. Maybe there are hard and fast rules. I'm not aware of them. Maybe there's some nerdy accountants that can... Well, I, 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 think, I think a lot of times companies kind of go with the rule that if it's non-cash, we can, we can back it out, something like that. Because a lot of, a lot of the, the backing out and the exclusions that you see are, are around uh, stock, right. stock grants and that sort maybe, of thing. Maybe the thing to do is find a company that excludes positives and negatives. You don't want a company that just excludes the negatives and makes themselves look better all the time. So maybe that's the thing. Or, but the, I think the reason is to show that true earnings power. So they're not submitting this to – these aren't their official numbers. They usually provide these as – Right. They, the, well, they, well, they can't put them out as official numbers right. because of the SEC. the SEC. But it's kind of the, hey, like this is what we really look like if you're trying to project our earnings out. It's not you, all you, – you're you, so cynical. You make, you make it sound so good. But, but the but, – a lot of these companies are are saying basically this is what we this is what we really look like when a lot of what they're backing out isn't one time at all isn't really it, it, even if it's non cash it's not non value taking away from okay. the shareholders. All right, let's move on to the game. <laughs> Jeez. All right, we have a game for today. The game is full in the blank. Uh, we have what? What do we have? Three scenarios. Just two. Just two scenarios. We have two scenarios. We've got a blank in each one, and we're going to fool it in. Here's the first one. David, the cold weather is a blank excuse for lackluster housing numbers. Of course, we said earlier that it wasn't lackluster in new home sales, but what do you say? Conveniently awesome. It's a conveniently awesome excuse. Well, it depends on who you're looking at. If you're okay. someone who's trying to sell homes a lot, that's really awesome if you can just be like... I know, I didn't sell your home, but look at the weather. It was terrible. Conveniently awesome. What do you got? I'm going to go with reasonable. <laughs> I think it's a... Sorry, that, that wasn't very good. I think it's a reasonable excuse. I, I just... I, this is anecdotal. It's personal. So, so I don't know how much you can read into that. But I just... I, it's so hard. To, it's been so hard to bring myself to go outside of the house, go outside of temperature-controlled areas during January and February. I can't imagine... Wanted to go out and about. I guess most don't most real estate agents have Cadillac Escalades that they take people around in. So the good one. I guess yeah. So I guess if you have a Cadillac Escalade taking you around with the heat blowing nice. on you, and you just run into the house <laughs> to look at it, I don't know. But I, 
this has not been a winter that I would want to do house hunting. Most people don't anyway during right. the winter. Exactly. So I think it's reasonable. All right. Last scenario. This is an interesting one. Blank is the year I first buy my lunch with a cryptocurrency or digital currency, whatever you want to kind of call it. So I didn't say Bitcoin. The first year that you buy your lunch with Bitcoin, I left it open that other things could happen. Other currencies could come up. What are you saying? You don't buy your lunch often, but... What, what year are we in? We're in 2014. This is 2014. This what is 2014. I'm, I'm going to say 2015. Okay. I'm going to say wow. 20, 2015 is the first year that I buy my lunch with a digital currency. And look, I'll tell you why. And, and this is, you, you know this already, but I went to use my debit card to get out cash yesterday, and I realized that Visa had shut down my ATM card. Yep. And they had shut down my ATM card in October, and I had no idea because I just, I don't use cash. I don't get cash out. And so now I'm in this situation where I don't have any cash, I don't have any access to cash, and usually it doesn't matter, but I need to pay for something in cash. I'd rather pay for everything with credit card or digital, and so... When somebody gives me the option, an, another option, to pay for something You're with... You're taking it. Yeah, I'm taking it. You better believe it. I'm going with 2020. 2020? You know, I've been optimistic... Are you Walters? <laughs> I've been optimistic about the digital currency revolution, if you want to call it. It's a long ways off. But I think it's going to take some time for me to be buying my lunch every day with a digital currency. But 2020, we'll see. All right, let's finish off in the Twitter sphere. David, what is the first tweet? Our first tweet of the day is... We got five of them. This one is from CC Way. She says... Don't fall prey to pattern, patternicity? Patternicity, you betcha. Finding meaningful patterns in meaningless noise. Do you do this? This was actually, this was from a, a, a reporting conference, a, a digital reporting conference. I try not to do this. I, I think a lot of people in the stock market fall prey to this because humans are pattern-loving machines. We love to look at things and create patterns where patterns do not exist, and that's very dangerous in the stock market. We all do it, though. You do it. You Second do it a tweet. Bit. Second tweet. This comes from Lee Rainey, uh, another gem, 1995 at Pew Research poll found 42% of Americans hadn't heard of the internet. 21% were vague about it. This is 1995, 42% of Americans hadn't heard of the internet. The, the web apparently turns 25 on March 12th. And so the, the Pew Research has got a bunch of stuff from the archives up there. In 1995, were you on the internet? I think so. I think so. Maybe I, not, though. I was. Uh, 21% vague about it. To go back to my Bitcoin run, I bet around 21% of people would say they're vague on Bitcoin right now. Not saying they're similar, but... That's interesting. It could be an interesting poll. Do you think 45% of people have never heard of Bitcoin? Yeah, I bet, they, I bet that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Not after this week, though. So I don't know. Maybe still. All right, third, third tweet. tweet. Third tweet. Going over to Josh Brown. I think globalization has played havoc with a lot of historical stock market valuation ratios. U.S. companies find growth profits elsewhere. S&P 500 companies, what is it, around 40% of profits are coming from overseas now? Yes. Is that just distorting everything? I think it has something to do with it. I, 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 think it, I think it makes it less comparable to what we've seen in the past, but I think there are a lot of things are, including perceptions of the risk in the stock market. Uh, that I mean, that would hurt returns, but I'm getting off course here. But yes, I, I think the fact that U.S. companies, companies based in the U.S., are not uh, are not just relying on the U.S. for growth, and in fact, are relying on elsewhere for most for a lot of their. Growth. I think it's a nice thought, in theory, but it's still going to come down to companies actually growing earnings. I don't think. Yes. Right. Well, 
does that just because it's coming from international doesn't mean you're guaranteed earnings growth. Right, but it, but but anybody saying, well, the U.S. is only growing right. at two or three percent, so these companies can't shouldn't be valued at at X. Um, the oper- there's so much opportunity to grow outside the U.S. Okay, okay. Fourth tweet. We're going to David Schiffman uh, at Canopy Meg. No one is a vegetarian. Tardigrades are in everything. You can't wash your vegetables enough. David, I had to look up what a tardigrade was. This is a micro animal. A micro animal. This is like the Rambo of micro animals. I don't even know if there are other micro animals, but can survive huge swings in temperature below freezing, way above the boiling point. They're on everything. Apparently, I'm not a vegetarian because I looked all at of a picture my... of it. Yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> I'm never eating again. <laughs> we, can, we can say that. All right, final tweet of the day. This is from Fallon tonight, at Fallon tonight. Just in time for the Oscars, we've got the Micro Machines guys. Summary of the nine Best Picture nominees. This was a YouTube video. We don't have it on here, but you can go look it up. Yeah, go, I, it's, it's, it's fun. You're and a huge Micro Machines guy. I, am, I, I was a big, back in the day, I was a really big Micro Machines fan. I was surprised by some of the movies in, in, the, in the grouping mostly because I haven't seen all of them, or probably actually most of them. But who's your vote for, for Oscar for Best Picture? I guess 12 Years a Slave? I don't yeah, know. I was going to say the same saying. thing. It's not, it's not a You've got to go with the consensus. You it's might not a feel-good well. flick. I didn't even know that was a consensus. That's, that's one of the ones I actually saw. Might as well bet on the favorite. Yeah. I, I, think, I think if <laughs> The Wolf of Wall Street wins over 12 Years a Slave... Something's wrong. That would be... <laughs> Pretty interesting. All right, that's the show for today. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. Look us up on Twitter at TMF Financials, on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Services. And of course, you can email us, WTMI at Fool.com. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.